So 1 Samuel chapter 31. Um, we have to go back a couple of chapters to find out where Saul was at. Remember last time we saw Saul, um, the Israelites and the Philistines were facing off. Uh, the Israelites were on one side of a valley, Philistines on the other, and Saul became very afraid. His first uh, attempt at doing something was to try to get in contact with God. And he tried the priest, he tried prophets, he tried dreams. I'm not sure how you try dreams. I guess you just go to sleep and hope God comes to you in a dream. Uh, and God did not respond to Saul. And so Saul said, well, God's not responding to me. May I try to contact Samuel. Only problem is, Samuel's dead. So Saul decides, I'm going to find somebody who can call up people from the dead, supposedly. And so he finds a medium. Well, the, the big problem with that is that there's not supposed to be any in Israel because a long time ago, probably when Saul was actually obeying God, he supposedly got rid of them all. Well, lo and behold, there's still one left in Israel kind of hiding out, hiding from Saul. So Saul disguises himself, goes to the medium, and says, I need you to do something for me. Call up the person from the dead that I named for you. And she's like, well, I don't want to do that because if Saul finds out about it, he'll kill me. And Saul, who's in disguise, and she doesn't know who he is, says, don't worry about it. Nothing will happen to you. I promise you'll be safe. That's what she does. And she says, who do you want me to call up? And he says, Samuel. And so, and this, I, again, I, my, my thoughts on this is that I, I don't believe that people can just call up dead people. I don't think that that's an ability that people have. I think this is a situation where, and I'll say, quite honestly, my theory on it is if you were to go to someone today who says they can talk to the dead, I think it's all some kind of trick, some kind of smoke and mirrors type thing. I don't think it really happens. This situation, I think God in his sovereignty allowed Samuel to come back from the dead to talk to Saul, to make a pronouncement to Saul about what was going to happen. And I think this was a one-time situation where God said, I'm going to do this because this is going to further my purpose for what I'm trying to do here. So that that's really what I think happened. I don't think that people can really do this, and I, I, I I'm pretty I'm pretty solid in that belief. So anyway, so Samuel comes back and he says, "Why have you done this?" Saul says, "Well, I was scared and God wouldn't answer me, so I wanted to talk to you." and to paraphrase Samuel's answer, and in, in my mind what Samuel says is, well, if God isn't going to talk to you, why do you think me, who has served God faithfully all my life, and now you know, I'm, I'm a dead servant of God, why do you think I'm going to do any better if I'm a servant of God? And then basically Samuel says, well, because you failed God by killing the Amalekites, and because now you've done this, guess what? God's going to kill you tomorrow. And he's going to take your kingdom away and he's going to give it to David. And so, then we have two chapters where we deal with David, and I'm not going to review that because you can look at last week's lesson if you want to do that. And we come back to Saul, and this is tomorrow from that point. So, the, the story jumped over to David for a little bit. Now we're back to Saul, and we're still at this point where the Philistine army is on one side of the valley, and the Hebrew army is on the other side of the valley. Nothing's changed in that one day. And so Saul comes back to his army now just in deep despair. Remember, Saul wouldn't eat for a while, and they finally convinced him to eat. And he's back with his army now, and let's find out what happens to his army. Verse 1, who would like to read? Jana, go ahead. 
So number one, Israel loses to the Philistines. Now, during Saul's time, Israel had a lot of victories against the Philistines. A lot of that had to do with, of course, David being a wise general, a man who followed and trusted God, and God gave him a lot of victories. Here, Israel has a, a bad loss to the Philistines. So the Philistines and the Israelites fought, and the Philistines win. So Israel flees from them, and as they're fleeing, the Philistines, instead of just leaving them run away, they chase after them, and they kill many of them. And so it's a slaughter. The Philistines have this, this big victory over Israel. Um, and now we're going to get to a little more specifics. Verses 2 and 3. We need another reader. Miriam. So Saul's sons die. Now, if you're thinking of names for children, here's a great place to go and get some fun names. Abinadab and Melchishua. Are you glad you're not a Hebrew and having to pronounce these names all the time? Um, uh, three of sons Saul's die in the battle. Now, Abinadab and Melchishua, we don't really know very well other than by name because they haven't appeared in the story very often. But one of them we do, and that's Jonathan. And what do we know about Jonathan? He's a great friend of David. He's a great friend of David. What else do we know about Jonathan? What's that? you got to speak up. I hear whispering. <laughs> he, he served the Lord. He, he was faithful to God, right? What else do we know about Jonathan? He loved David. Okay, he was a great friend of David. He loved David. He served the Lord. What else? He had been, been uh, Saul's oldest, so he was the next in line to be king. Right? And he, he told David, I'm going to give up that right to support you. So he gave up his right to be king because he knew that God had chosen David and he was willing to follow God's plan instead of his own plan. What else about Jonathan? What was his position in Saul's army? Yeah, he was one of the generals, right? So, so Jonathan was killed, um, and he was killed by the Philistines. Now, how many sons does Saul have? How many? Three. Wrong. Four. Saul has four sons. Three of his sons were killed here. We're going to find out when we start 2 Samuel that there's another one left over. Uh, remember, there's a couple times where Saul says to David, uh, please have mercy on my house and those who come after me. David has the opportunity to do that because Saul leaves a son behind. And David has the opportunity to show him some favor here. Um, so three of sons, Saul's sons die. And actually, this fourth son, uh, the seven years where David actually has to wait to become king fully over Israel because of the fourth son. Um, so three of Saul's sons die, one remains. Um, and it goes on to say that Saul was also wounded. He was wounded by archers, which, uh, you know, if you have archers, this is like, you know, they fought hand to hand. But if you have archers, that's good because you can strike from far away. That's a lot safer way to get someone. Uh, and 
Saul gets hit by an archer and he's wounded and it says that he was severely wounded. Uh, this is mortally wounded. This is he's going to die wounded. Um, and so his three sons die and Saul is in bad shape. So let's look at verses 4 through 6. Abigail, you could go ahead. I'll get to you, Josiah. So Saul and his armor bearer. What was an armor bearer? Someone who carries the armor. He's an armor bearer. What 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 would we think of like what's an armor bearer kind of? What's his role? His assistant, uh, like in, if we we're thinking knightly, it'd be like the squire, someone who. Uh, almost like an understudy type person. This was a guy who was continually with the king, kind of his apprentice almost, in the battle. So, yep. Remember, Goliath had an armor bearer that carried his shield in front of him. Yep. If he had a chariot, we don't know that Saul had a chariot. Yeah, but that's true. So his armor bearer was was someone who was constantly with him. This was Saul's shadow, so to speak. Um, so Saul asked his armor bearer to kill him uh, with his sword. Thrust me through with your sword, and he does this for two reasons. One, because he doesn't want to be killed by uncircumcised people. Now, what does he mean by this? Yeah. He, so somebody who's not an Israelite, he doesn't want, he's, he's, he's being a little bit prideful here. He doesn't want a non-Israelite to kill him. He doesn't want these uncircumcised dogs to kill him. There's a little pride going on still at the end of his life. And then second of all, that they won't abuse him. And literally, this is act severely. Um, and maybe he's afraid that they're going to torture him to death, which is a possibility. He's already dying, but maybe they'll make it hurt more and take their time, so he wants a quick death. And he's hoping his armor bearer will do it. Now his armor bearer, he's not going to do it. He's afraid. What is he afraid of? Why? Okay. He might be just terrified and shocked and not able to do it. That's the one possibility. What else might he be afraid of? Okay, there could be retribution for killing the king. That's another option. One more option. Uh, maybe. Okay, armor bearer, again, this is the guy that was with Saul all the time. So he would have been with Saul, every time that David let Saul go free, and he would have heard David say, I'm not going to raise my hand against the Lord's anointed. At least twice he heard that from David's mouth. And so maybe 
there's the possibility armor bearer remembers this and says David wouldn't kill Saul because he was afraid to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed how can I do that it's a possibility I just thought I'd bring that up so the, the armor bearer, at any rate the armor bearer won't kill Saul so Saul kills himself he falls on his sword uh, I never know how anybody could do this. This seems like a very uh, difficult thing to do. But we watched uh, some 9/11 videos around the 9/11 time, and um, we 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 saw the videos with people jumping out of the towers and stuff when it was happening. And I think I can never do that. But the, for the people, it was either burned to death or fall to their death, and they're making it one choice or the other. For Saul, is either kill myself quickly or have the Philistines come and torture me to death. Um, so uh, you get in desperate situations, I guess you make some desperate choices. And Saul felt like he was in a desperate situation making a desperate choice. And some commentators said, well, Saul here maybe still should have trusted God, should have fought to his death, or should have surrendered and hoped for the best. Saul didn't see it that way. He saw two options, die quickly or die a slow, torturous death to the Philistines. Um, so the armor bearer sees Saul kill himself, and he despairs at this point, and he follows suit and kills himself also. And then we get to verse 6, which says, Saul, his three sons, his armor bearer, and all his men died together that same day. Now, all his men are who? Yeah, some people are like, well, all his men, he had 3,000 men there. Everybody died? I don't think that's what that means. Who is all his men? It's probably his personal guard, his household maybe, whoever, whoever his personal group of people that he would keep with him. Those are probably all his men in this situation. It's probably not the whole army dying because they're fleeing and being chased down yet. So uh, I'm guessing it's not all 3,000 of his men that were dying here with Saul that day, but more is his personal group of people that he kept with him. Yeah, he still, lives. he still lives. Yeah, so so there's 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 some uh, thought that uh, obviously it's not the whole army here. It's just it, his yeah, his his entourage, his, his, per, his personal guard, his personal guard. Yeah. And that, and that's, that was his, his unit he was in charge of, and his, their responsibility. Well, it was to keep him safe. Keep him safe. Yep. And he already got hit with an arrow, so they're probably pretty much dead or dying. Wait a minute. Yeah. Yeah. So that it, 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 so all his men are probably his personal men, not the army here. Okay. So verses verse seven. Uh, let's see what happens here. Ed, we're gonna let you. I'll get you. And the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley, and those who were on the other side of the Jordan, saw that the men of Israel had fled, and that Saul and his sons were dead. They were shook the city and fled, and the Philistines came and well in them. Well, I'm really off today. These are supposed to be Roman numerals. Okay, so I'm changing the Roman numerals up here. Um, the local people fled. So the men of Israel, the other side of the valley, the ones that are nearby on the other side of the Jordan here, they saw the Israel fleeing. This is the army. They saw the army fleeing. They saw that Saul and his sons were dead. I don't know if they actually saw them die or you know they heard news of it. 
whatever. So they forsook their cities. They took off. They're, they're like, we're doomed. We're getting out of here before the Philistines come and kill us. Um, which makes it really easy for the Philistines because the Philistines go, whoa, already built cities for us. Awesome. So the Philistines took the cities and they dwelt in them. They, had, they didn't even have to seize the cities. They didn't have to burn them down. They're, they're just there and empty and the Philistines just moved in. Very convenient for them. So the people of Israel took off and that allowed the Philistines to just grab these cities and it became part of their territory now. This is, everything so far is going super well for the Philistines. This is like, they're having the victory of their lifetime. They're, they're having the best day that they've ever had against Israel in like, since Saul became king probably. Everything is going right for them. Um, let's move on, verses 8 through 10. Joanna. The Philistines celebrate their victory. So the Philistines were plundering the battlefield. This is a smart thing to do when you're fighting because the other army supposedly has weapons and armor and weapons and armor are expensive to get. So if you don't want to try to make it yourself, you steal it from the dead people that are on the battlefield when you win. So they're going through the battlefield, they're plundering the battlefield, and they find Saul and his sons. Now Saul obviously is going to have probably the best armor in Israel and the best weapons, and so this is great for them. Um, also, this becomes a trophy. Remember Goliath? What happened to his armor? David got it. It was in the temple for a while, and then eventually David got the sword back because he needed a sword, right? Um, so, so they take it as a trophy. Um, so they find Saul and the sons, they cut off Saul's head. Now why would they cut off his head? What's that? Yeah, it, it's a show. You bring the head of the king back and say, hey, look, we killed the king, here's proof, here's his head. You're not going to fake that, right? And so you get to show it off, this is your trophy. Um, they stripped off his armor, and then they proclaimed Saul's death, both to their people. So they went back and said, we killed the king of Israel. And they proclaimed it in their temples. They became, it became a thing of worship. For the Philistines, this was a religious war. It was their gods versus the Israelite gods. And today, in their mind, their god prevailed over the Israelite god. Their god was stronger than the Israelite god. So they're going back and they're, uh, you're going to see a lot of uh, temple worship with them. That they, They're bringing this stuff to their temples to show that, hey, our gods gave us this victory. Um, so they placed Saul's armor in their temple and then they took Saul's body without his head and we'll find out later that his sons are there too but they fastened his body to the wall at Beth Shan. Uh, Beth Shan in the Hebrew means house of, house of quiet or house of silence. Um, it's 16 miles south of the Sea of Galilee so the Sea of Galilee is way up here so it's, it's actually almost down to the Dead Sea. It's going to be near the, the land of Benjamin, we'll see in a second. Um, 
And they, they hung his body there. Again, remember, they just took cities. I mean, they came all the way through here and took cities, and people on the other side of the Jordan fled. So they have, they've conquered all this land across the bottom of Israel now because of this big battle they won. They have a, a stretch across there. So they're, they've had just, just an amazing day because of this victory here. And so, so they have Saul's body and the body of his sons. They're, they're presenting these as trophies. These are their victory trophies. And his armor and everything, and they're, they're showing it off, saying, we won, we beat the Israelites, we killed their king. Yea for us, yea for our gods. We're the better people. Uh, verses 11 through 13. I promised Josiah, so there you go. So all the valiant men came. They come and rescue Saul's body. They're from the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead. What do we know about Jabesh Gilead? We've encountered them before. Are you looking it up, Abigail? Yeah, when did Saul save them? What happened before chapter 11? The good job, Ted. What happened in chapter 10? Yeah, remember when Saul was anointed king, and some people were like, oh, yay, we have a king now, and other people were like, what can this man do for us? Can this guy really save us? Remember, there were the, these worthless men that did not really like Saul. They were, they were trying to put him down. They were trying to uh, belittle him. And the first task that Saul had was to save Jabesh Gilead from... Uh, it, it wasn't... Uh, who were the people there? It was uh, Ammonites, yeah. Um, and they were being attacked. Remember that the Ammonites were like... They surrounded the city and... The men of Jabesh Gilead said uh, we're trying to sue for peace, and they said, "Well, if you poke out your right eye and uh, do this, then we'll let you have peace." And they were like, um, "We don't want to do that." So they sent for Saul, and Saul gave them the, this day tomorrow your deliverance will be here. And he comes and he wipes out these guys and saves the city. So Saul reigned about forty years. Forty years later, these guys, I think, remember what Saul did for them, and. They find out where Saul's body is hanging there, and they said, this is not right. And so they get together, and they make a plan, and they decide they're going to rescue Saul's body. And so they travel by night, and they grab Saul's body. And here we see that they, they rescue Saul's body and his sons from the wall of Bethshan. So they took all four of those bodies, um, and then they burned the bodies. Now, why did they burn the bodies? Um, yeah, the, the one, I don't think for sanitary reasons necessarily. That's one theory is that the Philistines can't get the bodies back easily because they might want to try to do that. Also, the Philistines probably disfigured the bodies so badly it was probably something that they didn't want to just bury them disfigured. And so they burn them. Usually, the, 
the Israelites wouldn't burn bodies. That wouldn't be their normal way of burying somebody. And so this was an unusual circumstance. Uh, but they only burned them, they didn't burn them all the way because their bones were left and they buried their bones. Um, and they burned them in uh, Jabesh Gilead. Uh, and it's, it's important to note that David later finds where Saul's bodies are buried and he moves them to Saul's hometown. So he unburies them and then reburies them where they should be buried in his hometown in his inheritance. But for now, the men of Jabesh Gilead were trying to do what they could for him, uh, giving him a more honored place of rest. Um, and they fasted for seven days because of the death of Saul. Now, um, you know, Jabesh, the people of Jabesh Gilead, I don't think they were necessarily honoring Saul because Saul was doing great and good things. I think this was kind of the same theory that David had in not killing Saul. This was the Lord's anointed. This was the leader of their people. And he may have done some wrong things, but he didn't deserve to be dishonored and mocked and hung to a wall like the Philistines had. And so they were going to do that to at least honor him in that way. So it talks about them here being valiant men to do this. I, I think the author recognizes that and saying that he deserved more dignity in his death, even though he had disobeyed and forsook God, that he didn't deserve to be mocked the way the Philistines had mocked him. And so these men rescued him from that, his body from that, and they gave him a more proper burial than uh, what the Philistines were giving him. So that's the death of Saul. Not a very happy death at all. Um, and when you look at this, you know, Saul, you can say, well, Saul did this to himself, right? Saul rejected God. He disobeyed God. He didn't do what he's supposed to do. And, you know, he had fallen so far that he got tied up into the occult even at the end. And God had totally rejected him and put him, in, uh, had him in this circumstance where he would die like this. And so it was, it was Saul's fault here. Uh, I want to look at some of these takeaways, and I want to spend some time on these this morning since we have time. Um, Saul's disobedience caused the loss of this battle. And that you can look directly at chapter uh, 28, where Samuel says, Tomorrow you will die, and Israel will lose the battle. It's because of Saul's disobedience, God said that this would happen here. So Saul's disobedience caused the loss of this battle, and it caused the death of many soldiers. It caused the death of his three sons, and we already talked about Jonathan's character. Jonathan was a man who loved God, who feared God, who did what was right. And because so Saul's disobedience, Jonathan died. Um, as well as the loss of protection of the homes for those who lived near the battle. There were a lot of people who fled and lost their homes to the Philistines because of Saul's disobedience. I write here that uh, we may think that our sin only impacts us and that is not a big deal, but our sin has an impact on those around us. And you look at Saul, and his sin never just impacted himself. It always impacted people around him. It always caused problems for people around him. It was never just Saul's sin and Saul's consequences. Even David, further on, you know, when David sinned with Bathsheba, there were consequences to his family. There was consequences to the nation of Israel that happened because of what he did. Later on, he numbers the people when he wasn't supposed to, and God says there's consequences to that, and it was beyond David. It wasn't just David who suffered the consequences. His people ended up suffering the consequences of their sin. 
and our sin does not just affect us. As Christians, not only in general does it affect the people around us, but we're part of the body of Christ. We're joined together in a, in a spiritual way in the body of Christ, so our sin naturally has to have an effect on the whole body. And what he does affects the rest of the body. So I, I brought a couple of passages that talk about us being part of the body of Christ here. Uh, Romans 5 says, So we, being many, are one body in Christ, and individual members of one another. And Paul here in Romans talks about that even though we're many, even though we're separate individuals, we're part of this one body. And he brings us up in a good way in this passage that, you know, we're working together, we're knit together, we're to help each other, but when sin gets into the body, it affects the whole body. And so we need to take our sin seriously because it doesn't just affect us. 1 Corinthians 10. I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 10. This is actually, I've been reading this in my Bible reading. This is where I'm at in 1 Corinthians. Um, and you can turn there, but don't, don't look at the passage yet. Kind of keep your eyes up from it. How many of you know 1 Corinthians 10.13? Anybody have that memorized? I bet if I started, you'll recognize it. No temptation has seized you. So you know that verse, right? You guys have heard that verse before, right? And it's no temptation has overtaken you because I learned it in, uh, I learned it, uh, I think, NIV when I was a kid. No temptation has overtaken you except such as common to man. We know that first. Well, let's look at the context of 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10, verse 1. Moreover, brethren, I do not want you to be unaware that all our fathers were under the cloud and passed to the sea. What is he talking about here? The Exodus, he's talking about Israel, right? Our fathers, is, he's talking about the fathers in Israel. They're under the cloud, the cloud being the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire that traveled with them. And they passed through the sea being the, the Red Sea crossing, right? All were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea. And so he, he's, he's painting a picture here that all their fathers in the Exodus were in a way, joined together as one unit. They're, they're one together because they all pass under the cloud, they all pass through the sea. They were one together because of this, right? All ate the same spiritual food and all drank the spiritual drink, for they drank of the spiritual rock that followed them, and the, that rock was Christ. I'm not going to get into that theology because that's a lot of fun. Um, but with most of them, God was not well pleased, for their bodies were scattered in the wilderness. Now these things became our examples to the intent that we should not lust after evil things as they also lusted. We do not become idolaters as some were some of them, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Nor let us commit sexual immorality as some of them did, and in one day 23,000 fell. Nor let us tempt Christ as some of them also tempted and were destroyed by serpents. Nor complain as some of them also complained and were destroyed by the destroyer. Okay, so you go through that, and he's telling us they're an example to us, and then he lists a bunch of things that happened, and giving me a general idea, are these good things that they did or bad things? Bad, bad. Yeah, th these are all bad things they did, right? These are all things that they shouldn't have been doing. These are all sin against God. And what happened to them? 
generally what happened? They died, right? So he's saying, here's your example is Israel. They were all together one. They were all together. They sinned against God, and there were consequences to their sin. That they died. One day, 23,000 of them died. Another day, a lot of them were destroyed by serpents. Um, another day, a lot of them were destroyed by the destroyer. And then verse 11, he says, Now these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonishment among whom the ends of the ages have come. So they're written to us as examples. That we look at that and we say, Oh, look what Israel did. Let's not be like Israel. Now again, I'm going to come to this verse in uh, verse 17. So I want you to stay with me here. He's talking about Israel as a unit, and Israel as a unit, sin entered into Israel, and people were destroyed by sin. Um, It says in verse 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. And so there's a warning to us. You know, be careful if you think that you got it figured out and you're not going to be tempted by anything. You need to be careful because you could be just like Israel. The temptation is there. But then he says, No temptation has overtaken you except as common to man. Okay. What's he talking about? He, 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 his example is Israel. Israel was tempted and they failed, but no temptation has seized you except for what is common. You're, you're going to be tempted the same way, but God is faithful. Israel failed in the temptation. You don't have to. God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, which, which is a great promise that, you know, there, there's times in my life where I felt like I was tempted and like I can't handle it, God. And that's just a lie. That's true. God doesn't tempt us beyond what we're faithful. He doesn't allow us to be, God doesn't tempt us at all. God doesn't allow us to be tempted beyond what we're able. And again, I think back to Job. And remember the beginning of Job. In Job 1, uh, Satan comes before God and God says, Have you noticed my, my servant Job? That guy's awesome. He's doing what's right. He's, he's living the right way. And Satan's like, Yeah, but you've given him everything. Take away his stuff. And he's going to curse you. And God says, okay, take away stuff. But this is what you can do and this is what you can't do. God sets limits on what Satan can and can't do. I think he does that for all of us. I think, and I, I don't, again, I've said this before, I don't think I draw Satan's attention. I'm not that important. I think Satan has bigger fish to fry, but there, I, I think there's spiritual warfare going on. And I think God's setting limits on whoever is coming after me in the spiritual realm and saying, this is what you can do to Sean and this is what you can't do to Sean because this is what Sean can handle and this is what Sean can't handle. And this verse tells me God's not going to allow me to be tempted beyond what I can bear. So there's, there's limits and God says, this is what you can do to him and this is what you can't. And I think that's true of all of us. So, so when you think, I can't do it, that's a lie because God's not going to give you something you can't do. God is faithful. He's not going to let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. Um, but where you're able. But with the temptation, you'll also make a way of escape. So there's a way that you can get away from that temptation. That, and this is interesting because look at the way this is worded. You'll make a way of escape. So it sounds like the temptation will go away, right? But then look what he says, that you may be able to bear it. The way of escape is a way that you can bear the temptation. 
So it doesn't mean necessarily the temptation will go away. It's a way of escape so that you can do the right thing in the midst of the temptation. So God's not going to take it away. He's going to help you do what's right even when the temptation's there. Anyway, so, but this is all in the context of Israel as an example, right? So verse 14, he says, Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Why is he talking about idolatry? Well, that idolatry was one of those problems that Israel faced. And the Corinthians also would be facing this in their culture. And so Israel's your example. They had trouble with idolatry. Even in the Exodus, they had trouble with idolatry. Moses goes up to the mountain. We don't know where he's gone. Make us a god that can lead us out of here. Okay, give me your gold and silver, and we'll fashion a calf. Aaron, what have you done? Well, we threw the gold in the fire, and out came this calf. Sure it did. You know, they, they were making idols. Um, I speak to you as wise men. Judge for yourself what I say. Now look where he goes. Sweet from idolatry. Look where he goes next. The cup of blessing which we bless, is it not the cup, the communion of the blood of Christ? The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? What is he talking about? He's talking about church. He's actually bringing it back to the Lord's table. So flee from idolatry. Now he's going to bring in the Lord's table. He's going to tie it together in just a second. So verse 17 says, For though we, though many, are one bread and one body. And he ties the idea of the bread to us, that we're one bread, we're one body. For we all partake of that one bread. And you go back, you have to go back to the beginning of the chapter. What was Israel? They were all passed under the cloud. They passed through the sea. They took the same spiritual food. They had the same spiritual drink. And all Paul's saying, you as one body and one bread, you're one. And the proof of that is that you share in the testimony that you belong to Christ. And that's what the communion table is, right? It's a testimony that say we identify with the, the shed blood and the broken body of Christ. And he's saying, because you say that, guess what? You're part of that one body. You're part of that one group. identification, yep. And he's tying it into even, uh, you know, as we take the Lord's table, that we're identifying with, with the death, uh, the broken body, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Um, and then he says, verse 18, observe Israel at their flesh. He's still going back to Israel. Are not those who eat of the sacrifices partaker of the altar? So remember back, and you have to remember back years ago when we taught in Exodus and Leviticus. You know, when people brought the sacrifice, what happened? Many of the sacrifices, they took part of that sacrifice and they ate of the sacrifice. Why did they eat of the sacrifice? That was part of the worship. That was part of them identifying with that which was sacrificed. And they're saying, this sacrifice was for me. I'm eating of it because this is my sacrifice. And they would eat part of that sacrifice. And that's what Paul's coming to here. They eat of the sacrifice. They're partakers of the altur Verse 19, what am I saying then? Well, tell us what you're saying, Paul. That an idol is anything, or was offered to an idol is anything? Because remember in verse 14, he's talking about flee from idolatry. Is an idol anything? Are any of these false idols anything that's real? They're not. 
There's only one God, right? There's no, these false gods aren't anything. Rather that the things which the Gentiles sacrifice, they sacrifice to demons and not to God. I do not want you to have fellowship with demons. You cannot drink the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the Lord's table and the table of demons. Or do we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than he? So he finishes up there. Um, and then he goes into um, talking about can you eat meat sacrificed to idols? Is that lawful? Should we do that? That's another discussion for another day. But the idea here is that what he, what he talks about this verse in verse 17 that, that we're, we're uh, one bread and one body. He's looking back to all these other verses here and, and starting out in Israel and their sin and they're being an example to us and telling us Look at them as an example. Don't do what they do. Don't sin because you're one body. Because your sin affects what happens. In Israel, when they sinned, 23,000 people died and serpents killed a bunch of other people and the destroyer destroyed other people because their sin affected those around them. And you're one body. And just like Israel, just like they were baptized into the clouds, just like they were baptized into the sea, just like they partook of the bread and they partook of the water from the rock, because you identify with Christ, because you're one body, your sin affects those around you. And so, and he ties it directly to idolatry. So don't be participating in idolatry. That's fellowship with demons, and you're going to bring that into the body. Don't do that. But that applies to all sin. Don't sin because it affects the body of Christ, and you're part of that body. Does that make sense? Like, and, and when I was reading this, I, I've always known... 1 Corinthians 10, 13. And I, I never looked at the context of where it was from. It's good to look at context. It's good to read through and see the context of some of these verses. A couple other verses here. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. For as the body is, is one and has many members, and he's here talking about physical body. You look at your body, you have different parts of your body. Uh, but all the members of that body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. You know, he makes the argument your eye is not your nose and your nose is not your ear and your ear is not your foot. But they're all part of your body. They're all important. They all have a function. And he's making that argument. You know, we're one body and we may not be the same. We may not do the same things, but we're all together as one. And so what we do affects the body. And he even makes the point that, it, you know, if you have, if one body is part of the body is hurting, the whole body is hurting. Um, and again, I, I, I don't know if you all knew this, but uh, about a month ago, Maybe a month and a half ago. I don't remember how long ago it was. I got uh, swarmed by bees, and I took about 30 stings in the ankles. And that was on a Saturday, and it, for the next day and a half, well, actually it was longer than that, I, I could barely walk. But from Saturday to Sunday, I was really kind of uh, foggy and dizzy and just really in bad shape. My ankles got stung. But I couldn't function after that for a day and a half because my body's one. It's not just like, oh, my ankles are bad, but you know, the rest of me is fine. It affected the whole body, and that's kind of how sin affects the body of Christ. When sin gets in there, uh, it's going to affect the people around you. It's going to affect the body, so we need to be careful about that. Um, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. This is a passage I preached on at the beginning of the year. Um, actually, it, it was the last, last fall I started on this passage. Um, there's one body and one spirit, just as you were called and one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is above all and through all and in you all. You see how often the word one is used in there? 
you think there's a oneness to who we are in Christ? There's a oneness to what this group of people is, this body that we are. So we need to be careful of our sin. And then uh, verse 20, four, uh, 4.25, Therefore put away lying, and here he's dealing with the civic sin of lying, let each one of you speak truth with his neighbor, for we are members of one another, because your lying affects other people. So Saul's disobedience had consequences, not just for himself, but on many people around him. It affected many people, and the consequences of that affected many people. Our sin has, affects many people, even outside the church, but especially within the body of Christ. We need to be recognize that and say, you know, my sin is a serious thing, not just for me. It's not just a private thing. It's not just between me and God. It's something that affects all of us. So that's my takeaway number one. I thank you for listening for that, to that. Um, takeaway number two. David was anointed king of Israel. But he had to wait until God chose to make it happen. For David, he had to trust God's faithfulness and wait patiently on the Lord. So I want to give you a little quick timeline here. This is a very brief one. Saul becomes king. When does Saul become king? In the past. Around 1050 B.C. Saul becomes king. A little debate, 1051, 1048. Let's call it 1050. That's pretty close. So, next one is, when is Saul rejected as king? When does this incident with the Amalekites happen? This is about 1030 to 10... 28 BC. So he's king about 20 to 22 years. He faces off the Amalekites and disobeys God, and he's rejected as king. That's about the same time Saul's anointed, because remember Samuel goes right from there to anoint David, right? So the same time Saul's rejected as king, the same time David's anointed. When does Saul die? About 1010 BC. So how long from when David was anointed to when he actually sees Saul die and has the opportunity to become king? How long did he have to wait? How long? 18 to 20 years. That's your other blink that's down there. It's likely David waited on God to fulfill his... And mind you, this is a direct promise from God. This is God telling David directly, you're going to be king. He had to wait for God's direct promise to be fulfilled 18 to 20 years. All the while, fleeing from Saul for his life, living apart from his friends and family, often in caves or in the wilderness, having no stability, being betrayed and disowned by his people who should have supported him. How about us? We get impatient with God after like, what, a day? couple of hours. God, why aren't you fixing my situation? David waited 18 to 20 years for God to fulfill his promise. I plan on living forever.
He does not know when he's going to die. But God's faithful in that promise that he's going to give him eternal life. That's the way, that's the way David looked at the I'm going to be king. I'm going to leave it in God's hands to fulfill that promise. Yep. So you look at this, and, and we often get impatient with God if we have to wait longer than a day for him. That's true, right? I mean, that's true of me. I'll stand up here and admit it, like, God, I prayed, I read my Bible today, why aren't you fixing the situation? God will work in his time for his glory, and we need to trust in him and seek to submit to his will. I think we can learn a great lesson from David. I mean, David, and David had his times where he seemed like he despaired a little bit, but when push came to shove, he had two times that we have recorded where he had Saul right where he wanted him in the human sense. I said, no, I'm going to trust God. And we don't have exact dates on when those times happened, but it probably was years after that even that God worked the situation out. And it's probably years before that from when David was annoyed until he was even in those situations. So he had already probably been waiting years at this point to be king. And here's the opportunity, and David says, nope, I'm trusting God. It's been 13 years, but God's going to do it. That's how we should trust God. That's how we should trust God in these types of situations. So I, I, think, I think David... You know, and we talked about some of the things that he hasn't done right, some of the things where he seems to despair, some of the things where maybe he should have trusted God a little bit more. But overall, David was a faithful man waiting on God's will in God's time. And uh, when we get to Second Samuel, we'll, we'll see even um, if God hadn't killed Saul here, David would have still waited because of how he reacts to the news of Saul's death. Um, and just uh, how he reacts to uh, some people embellishing their role in Saul's death. Uh, we'll see that David David would have let Saul keep living if that's what God would have allowed Saul to do. And David said, well, if God's going to do it some, at some point in time, that was David's attitude. So any thoughts or questions? I'm hoping that was, that was helpful. Next week, like I said, we'll do a review. Um, we'll go over some overlying <laughs> themes of the book and some lessons we've learned through that. Uh, and uh, I haven't decided exactly what form the review will be in. I have some options, but we'll see. So let's go ahead and close in prayer. Uh, Nathan, will you close this prayer?